Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon filling in today for Julia Chatterley. Great to have you with us on this midterm election day in the U.S. American voters are heading to the polls to decide the balance of power in Congress. All of the 435 seats in the House of Representatives are up for grabs, as well as 35 seats in the Senate. And while Republicans are favored to win back control of the House, well, the race for the Senate, that could go either way. Global markets, of course, watching the face-off between the Democrats and the GOP very closely. Investors do tend to like divided government because it, it lessens the chances for major policy changes. They'd also like a quick, uncontested, and yes, safe, outcome to today's contest as well. For now, as you can see, the major U.S. averages are on track for their third straight session of gains, with Dow futures up about four-tenths of a percent, the Nasdaq closer to seven-tenths of a percent, and the S&P uh, also about up four tenths of one percent. And we will have expert analysis of what to expect later in the show from Greg Valliere. He is the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. The economy, the number one concern for many voters going to the polls today. President Biden and the Democrats have been largely criticized for not doing enough to help bring down inflation, which is hovering near 40-year highs. And voting is underway across America amid uncertainty about the economy. So who better to speak about that than CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. Christine, good to have you with us. You and I talk about this, it seems like, daily, this tale of two economies. You have unemployment very low, job creation still strong, but inflation remaining near 40-year highs. Last check, about 8.2 percent. And that's really shaping how people feel about this economy. Today, they're going to speak with their votes. They are. And, you know, voters tend to punish the party in power when they feel dissatisfied. And the party in power is the Democratic Party. Look, there are a lot of things to point to that are going well in the U.S. economy. U.S. households are stronger than they've been in years. Consumer spending is holding up. You mentioned the jobs market, still near a 50-year low in terms of, of the unemployment rate. But people feel bad about inflation, inflation at levels we haven't seen in 40 years. So that is the number one factor, I think. Punishing the party in power is what many people uh, are are, going to think is going to happen here when they go into the the ballot box. Now, let's be clear. There are a lot of uncertainties here. You've got a lot of early voting, people who are voting on the abortion rights issue in this country and gun control in this country. So there are a lot of other things that could be animating voters. We won't know for sure until all the voting is said and done. But certain 40 year, certainly 40 year high inflation is top of the list. Absolutely. And, and Christine, do you think anything changes after this election? Of course, we get that key inflation report on Thursday. Does today just this idea of at least making your voice heard? Does it change sentiment moving forward? Yeah, sort of exercising the demons, right, by going into the polling place and just, you know, voting, voting it fiercely, if you will. Um, look, 
I think it's really important to remind our viewers that in the United States, Congress is the is is the power of the, has the power of the purse strings. So taxing and spending, raising a debt limit that will be hit sometime next year, these are all really important functions of this Congress. And so, depending on the makeup of Congress, you could see different results. Right now, it's looking like you could be heading into a period of gridlock, which is, I think, what the markets traditionally like to see, where if you were to have a Republicans controlling um, uh, the House. And the Senate's, Senate and Democrats in the White House, you could have some form of gridlock here that mm. is what markets traditionally uh, like to see. It keeps sort of the uncertainty out of the whole scenario. Yeah. But the debt ceiling is really important for next year. Yeah, and it's an interesting point about the gridlock. You, you, it lessens the chance of major policy changes. It also lessens the chance of major spending. So uh, yep. it's an interesting point, Christine. Thank you. Christine Roman's there. And Becky Anderson now picks up the reins at the COP27 Climate Summit in Egypt. Becky. Thank you very much indeed, Rahel, and a warm welcome from Sharm el-Sheikh, where the scale of the climate crisis is being laid bare. There is a somber narrative, I have to say here, how best to ensure the survival of humanity. It sounds like a tall order, right? But there is work going on. On day two of COP27, we're going to hear from an array of world leaders, and among them you can sense grave urgency. The problems they must address are not new, but simply, simply put, a lack of progress on the major issues. High on the list, the hesitant move towards green energy. I challenge the president of Kenya, William Ruto, about this so-called green energy transition during the summit. He tweeted, and I quote here, developed nations must switch from carbon-heavy energy and direct their industrial investments to Kenya and other African countries that are already producing clean energy. That way, we will save the globe from climate change. Well, I put it to the president that other African nations rely on and may want to rely on going forward, cashing in on fossil fuel exports. So, how do we square that circle? Have a listen. Two wrongs never add up to a right. It was not right for us to pollute this world to the extent that we are facing an existential threat. We have real opportunities. Let me give you an example. In Kenya, we have huge deposits of coal. We have deposits of carbon. We have um, depo huge deposits of hydrocarbons. But we have made the conscious decision that we are going to go green. And today, 93% of our energy is green. And we pride ourselves that it is never, it's never too late to make the right decision. Mm, that's an ambitious target. Realistic? Well... CNN senior international correspondent David McKenzie joining me now. And earlier, um, the president described some of the trade-offs his government is forced to make as it deals with climate emergency. Um, and we know what's going on in the Horn of Africa. Uh, we know how many people are uh, close to starving. Um, so he laid out you know, some real reasons why you know, a clean energy future is important. What did you make of what you just heard? 
Well, the proof is uh, in the actions of the Kenyan government. You know, having been based in Kenya, Becky, for some time, even then, which was some years ago, you saw the move towards geothermal energy, wind and solar energy uh, quite aggressively uh, several years ago. But I have to say other nations in Africa are taking a different route. You look at Mozambique, Angola, Namibia, parts of North Africa and others all aggressively pursuing natural gas and oil deals with uh, developed nations. And there's that squeeze right now on Northern Europe and elsewhere because of the war in Ukraine. And there is uh, a need for many of those nations to secure energy. They're looking largely to Africa not entirely, but largely to Africa. And that means that there's this uh, disconnect between the potential gains economically that Southern African and uh, East African countries can make uh, in selling their oil and natural gas to the West, but also the fact that we are trying to avoid this climate catastrophe. I actually had an interesting chat with the head of the United Nations Environmental Program. She said that she understands that there will be a transitionary period. But by fully investing in fossil fuels right now, many activists say that you are really stopping any kind of progress that we can make towards mitigating emissions in the future, basically exporting the emissions to those countries that haven't caused this issue in the past. So while Kenya seems to be going on the right track, other countries are going on the wrong track, but they need financing to stop it. You can't expect countries to just pull the plug on the economic development. And I think that's one of the discussions and the importances of meetings like here in Sharm el-Sheikh. Whether they can make any progress, we are yet to see it. Becky? Mm. David McKenzie here with me in Sharm el-Sheikh. David, thank you. Mobilizing the private sector then to help the world to net zero uh, is massively important and has huge financial implications. It demands a change in thinking. The China-backed Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIB, is heavily committed to building climate-resilient infrastructure and technology. Its focus is on developing and emerging, uh, emerging economies. And Jin uh, Lin-Quin is the AIB's President, and you heard David and I there discussing um, the opportunities that Kenya sees in a world of clean energy. David also marking, as I did with President Russo, uh, the fact that a number of other African countries, quite frankly, want to see their dirty fossil fuel resources um, benefit them effectively. And the criticism is that the first move to phase-out fossil fuels is for state-owned banks like the AWIB to stop financing fossil fuel projects overseas. Your response? You see, AWIB, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, was born to deal with the challenges faced by members of the international community. And we were born to deal with climate change and we want to promote infrastructure for tomorrow. Infrastructure for tomorrow means we have to develop infrastructure for sustainable development in an environmentally benign way. And this new type of infrastructure should help reducing the emissions and deal with the climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation issues. So, well, let's talk about, you know, 
implementing on some of what you've just suggested. But before we do that, China backs the AWIB. It's worth noting the nation aiming to reach net zero emissions by 2060. This will require trillions of dollars to be invested in green and low carbon industries. Are they on track at this point? You know, ours is a multilateral development bank mm. with 57 funding members mm. now growing to 105. And I understand. All of the all of the members are committed to net zero. Mm particularly many developing countries who certainly have a lot of issues to deal with, but all of them are committed. That is why we get support from all of our shareholders to deal with climate change. And I believe they are deeply committed to net zero, and I'm sure they will do everything possible to, to realize that net zero in a program. You are an MDB, as they are known, a multi, uh, uh, multilateral development bank. I was with John Kerry mm. um, just over the weekend, and he and others um, are being very loud about the need for reform of organizations like yours to ensure that you are fit for purpose in providing support for the mobilization and, and catalyzation of financing so that countries like Kenya and those in your region can effort a clean energy future. To those critics of MBDs, uh, President, who want to see reform, you say what? You know, we are all for reform. But please keep in mind, this bank was created in the 21st century on the basis of experience of all the MDBs which were created over the last seven decades. So we benefit from the experience of the other MDBs, and we also try to have some innovative features so this bank could be lean, clean, and green. Lean means we would be cost-effective, clean, anti-corruption, corruption-free. Green, we promote green economy. And so we have also, you see, it's global, it's for growth, it's highlighting governance, and it's green. So as a new institution, we have already learned from the peer mm. institutions. So That's give me a advantage. good example of what the AWIB is doing as, as organized today, okay. and not without reform, what it's doing to help promote the adoption of clean energy projects. First, first of all, as you see, we are only seven years into operation. Mm -hmm. And we have financed roughly $36 billion, leveraging more money. Already, 48% of financing is for climate change mitigation adaptation. Already 48. And our objective is by 2025, at least 50% financing will be for climate change and Paris alignment. So this is what we do on the ground. Before I let you go, and thank you, um, because um, it's, such an imp it's so important that we understand uh, the, the um, employment of capital through organizations like your own. Just one question away from climate change, if I will. You've halted lending to Russia and to Belarus in the wake of the war in Ukraine. How long do you plan to continue that policy for? I uh, declared our policy with regard to this issue. Mm. And uh, uh, we 
we indicated very, very well that all these projects will be for further review. And we will do that by the very high standards. Final answer. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, sir. Good to have you. Really Thank good you. to have you. Okay. Hold on there. Jin Lin Quinn is president of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank joining us today. Um, Rahel, it's so important that at an event like this, you are talking to all stakeholders. You can get caught up to a degree in the sort of noise that comes from government leaders. And there's a lot of noise here. And most of it is about climate justice and absolutely rightly so. You and I um, could speak for hours about loss and damage, for example. But it's really key that we sort of reveal the other stakeholders involved uh, in meetings like these, because it's only when everybody is joined up uh, that you know, any work can be affected with regard to climate change. Absolutely. It is crucial to have these conversations, which, Becky, is why we're going to check back with you shortly. Thank you. Hmm. And from Egypt to now China, one of Apple's main suppliers is recruiting again at a plant in China. That's where workers were seen fleeing after a strict lockdown was imposed. Foxconn now says that it is offering one-off bonuses to staff who return to the company. Selena Wang is in Beijing. So, Selena, what are these incentives and do you think they'll work? Will they be enough to lure workers back? I mean, Foxconn is betting that this is going to be enough. Apple and Foxconn, they desperately need more workers at this facility in central China, in Zhengzhou. We are talking about the biggest Apple iPhone assembly facility. And this COVID outbreak there has put massive strain on Apple right before this key holiday season. Now, Foxconn is saying that living conditions and production, it is slowly, gradually getting back to normal, but they are still operating in this closed loop system, which means that staff members, they've got to live and work on site. That is not an easy setup for these workers who have to be away. They can't even see their families during this entire time. Now, Foxconn says it's giving a one-time bonus to workers who left and are choosing to come back, equivalent to 69 U.S. dollars. That's a one-time bonus. They're offering an hourly wage equivalent of four U.S. dollars for new workers. The background here, of course, is that since there was that outbreak in the Zhengzhou facility in mid-October, there's been absolute chaos at the factory. Viral videos showing masses of workers walking miles and miles on highways, even through farm fields, in order to escape the COVID restrictions at the factory campus. There were many complaints from workers about subpar living conditions, about the poor quality of food, and this has had a huge impact on Apple. Apple putting out an announcement saying that this is going to temporarily impact their shipments and it will cause a temporary delay because the capacity at the assembly factory has been significantly reduced. Now, what all of this shows is that Apple's reliance on China used to be a big reason for its success. It was low cost, efficient manufacturing. Now it's become a liability. Apple here is just the latest victim of China's zero COVID policy. This country is stuck in a seemingly endless cycle of lockdowns, quarantines and mass testing, taking a huge toll on the economy, businesses, people's lives. All of this has made it China a much harder place for Chinese businesses and global businesses to operate, Rahel. 
Absolutely. It's a great example, Selena, I think, of, as you pointed out, the delicate balance that uh, foreign companies that operate in China find themselves in, trying to uh, comply with these zero COVID policies, but also maintain business as usual. I think we're seeing that it's really hard to do. Selena Wang, thank you. Live for us there in Beijing. And coming up, markets and midterms. It's a critical day for U.S. democracy and U.S. stocks. How Wall Street will interpret today's voter verdict. That's just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. Polls are open across America this Tuesday as voters cast their ballots in the U.S. midterm elections. Control of the House and the Senate are up for grabs, as well as a number of state gubernatorial seats. It has been a hard-fought election season with crime and the economy topping the list of voter concerns. Republicans who have attacked the White House response to those two issues, while they are widely expected to win a majority of House seats. Less clear, however, who will come out on top in the Senate. Lots of concern about how today's vote will play out and whether there will be ballot challenges that could then delay results. In addition to today's vote lies the very real possibility that Donald Trump, the former president, will announce his presidential re-election bid coming soon. Trump, who has endorsed more than 200 candidates running today, is teasing a big announcement for November 15th, one week from today. Those comments coming uh, last night. Greg Valliere joins me now. He is the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, great to have you on a day like today. What do you think is the most favorable outcome for investors? Well, nice to see you. I'd say two things. Number one, a sense of predictability on things like taxes. I think with the House Mm -hmm. almost certainly going to the Republicans, I think investors can look at two years, 2023 and 24, without any change in the estate tax and capital gains rates, the step-up basis, top rates, everything stays the same. I think that's good. The other thing quickly is, do we have an election free of allegations of fraud? That will be a dark cloud for the uh, for the democracy. I'm curious. You said in a note this morning, Greg, that the price of food and gasoline determine this election. I spend a lot of my days talking about the price of food and gasoline as a business reporter. And you say the White House was slow to react. But as you know, I think the White House would push back and say those are not necessarily things that we directly control. Was this more so a, a failure of messaging from the White House and the Democrats? Yeah, good point. I think messaging was really crucial and there wasn't perhaps enough empathy. I think the Federal Reserve gets some blame. You have mm. to concede that there's inflation all around the world. But I think the White House refusal to acknowledge the warnings from people like Larry Summers will come back to haunt them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, markets do tend to rise in the months after a midterm, but of course, this is a very unusual time for our economy. Do you think markets will rise this time? I mean, you still have the Fed, which, as you just pointed out, is still hiking rates. I mean, do you think we'll still see that this time, or is this just really a very different economy? Well, it's been a crazy year, as you know, but I think that there will be a sense, again, of predictability, a sense that the markets won't have all of this uncertainty uh, to deal with anymore. You know, Trump is a wild card. I mean, Trump has to be in the limelight. He craves the publicity. And I think also he's going to announce next week because he knows he may get indicted soon and it might lessen the chances that an ex-president could be 
running again could be indicted. So there are a lot of things the markets will have to worry about. But I, I think the main story is that by midwinter, the Federal Reserve will make it clear they're about done with their tightening. I think a lot of people certainly hope so. But I want to circle back to uh, the former president, President Trump, as you just mentioned, those comments last night. Uh, he said, I'm going to be making a very big announcement, yeah. uh, very sort of, a, you know, a pretty dramatic tease there. So do you think it's inevitable that, one, he runs? And then, two, it sort of feels like the clock resets and now we are in for another two-year campaign. Isn't that ironic? We, we've had two a, a full year of campaigning for this election. Now we're looking at two years of campaigning for the next presidential election. So I, you know, I think Trump has to be careful not to overplay his hand. His base loves him, but an awful, awful quite outspoken about Trump's nickname for Ron DeSantis. I mean, are we really going to go through that again with childish, you know, sophomoric nicknames? If, if so, I think it's going to make people maybe weary of two more years of a Trump campaign. Yeah. Certainly a lot more to watch both today and apparently in the days to come. Greg Valliere, thank you. Good to have you with us. He is the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. And join CNN later for in-depth special coverage of the crucial U.S. midterm elections that will determine control of Congress. That starts at 4 p.m. Eastern. And next, the building blocks of the future. We will hear from a former NBA champion who is pioneering a project to prevent climate-related disasters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Shamal Sheikh and the race to save the future of the planet that we live on. We're at uh, COP27. This is the climate summit, of course, here in Shamal Sheikh. Germany, Belgium and Scotland are among the countries making new pledges to tackle climate change in places that are most vulnerable. The Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda says it's vital a loss and damage fund is established to help nurture a system of what he calls climate diplomacy. Egypt's foreign minister tells me it's crucial that wealthy nations make good on their commitments. When I spoke to Samir Shokri, he spelt out what he thinks leaders need to do and why he is worried about governments backtracking on their promises. Have a look at this. We want to see a clear commitment towards uh, more reduction of uh, greenhouse gases, more reduction of emissions, more uh, recognition of the importance of uh, adaptation for developing countries and the provision of the finance to enable developing countries to undertake the responsibilities. Do you worry that the world's richest are backtracking? Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a worry for uh, any uh, of the uh, parties of the conference to backtrack and s certainly those in the developed world who have the resources, who have the resilience to be backtracking would send a devastating uh, message and would uh, uh, have a very negative impact on the issue of trust. And the issue of trust is an important one where there's a feeling of commonality and that uh, we are all in this together and must shoulder the responsibilities, uh, differentiated responsibilities. You have talked about the pressing issue of funding arrangements, specifically for developing nations under what's known as loss and damage. Now, last year, high-income or rich countries blocked a proposal 
for a financing body under that scheme. How can you be sure that that won't happen again this year? Well, I think what we have achieved after 30 years of discussion of this item during this COP, after very strenuous negotiations that the presidency team led, to incorporate the, on the agenda an item related to loss and damage in itself an achievement. But we are not going to limit ourselves to that. But we also have to be practical. This is an issue of uh, sensitivity and uh, of complexity. And we will be uh, confident to move it ahead in terms of discussion and within a specific time frame that uh, the parties can come to an understanding on the uh, finance mechanisms that would uh, provide the assistance to developing countries where it comes to loss and damage. Salman Shokri is the Egyptian foreign minister and president of this COP27. Well, one man is taking the mission to help those most at risk from climate change into his own hands. Former NBA champion Rick Fox is the driving force behind a new housing project in the Bahamas, where just three years ago, lives and livelihoods were torn apart by Hurricane Dorian. He is now pioneering the use of patana, which is a building material that removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. With that, he's working to create the world's first carbon negative housing community to reduce the likelihood of future disasters. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that Rick Fox uh, is joining us now. It's good to have you. Um, the project looks amazing, and I want to hear about uh, what you're doing. Before that, let's just step back and remind ourselves what happened three years ago and why climate crisis is such a risk to an island like yours. Well, a country that I care deeply about, the Bahamas, is a home to the climate disaster alley, as I would call it, yearly. Uh, we were hit with Hurricane Dorian that misplaced, displaced 30,000 people, destroyed our homes, uh, put us further into debt. Uh, and as we move forward trying to find solutions of innovation, we have to find better ways to build. And quite frankly, uh, the way we're building right now is not strong enough, not safe enough, not sustainable enough. And Partana is a building material that removes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as it, for, as it cures and avoids carbon emissions through the process of creation, also creating carbon credits, which allows us to use for good. Um. You mentioned a couple of things, the loss of lives um, for an island that is debt burdened, um, the damage and the, and, and the loss um, yes. is huge, of course. We hear a lot about loss and damage here, but it is fantastic, and it is fantastic to hear you talking about one project which, create, which creates a solution uh, which is sort of multifaceted. How did you come across this and why? I get. You know, I get the emotional attachment to what's going on. What got you involved specifically? Personal, uh, ex personal disaster, survival, mm. a need for action. There's been a lot of talk. Uh, this is my first COP27, uh, and it's nice to be with like-minded folks looking for solutions, looking to innovate. Um, I'm fortunate to have a partner in Sam Marshall. The two of us came together, had the experience with it's like to be impacted by climate change in, its, in this way. Uh, we took uh, two ingredients and we modernized cement. So when you have a need for solutions and it's immediate and you don't have time to debate any longer, you'll find solutions come from the most unlikely places. And so we were able to put our heads down and really develop this through some scientific partnerships, 
uh, with some of the best people in the world, and it's led to a solution that we have here now that can uh, change the world we believe and the way we build. You said this is your first COP. Um, yes. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> For most people here, <laughs> uh, they are not COP virgins. Um, so I guess for our viewers' sake, it's really important to understand what you're achieving here. Because as we've said earlier on in this show, it's not just about governments getting together and the sort of speeches that we hear, which are important, sort of interviews I get to do with the Egyptian foreign minister, which is important and illuminating. It's actually the work behind the scenes yes. at an event like this that matters going forward. Just explain your experience, if you will. Well, beyond the introduction of, of our company and the, and the technology that we have, there's an opportunities to share uh, with countries, with developers, the technology available, make it available to them, to sit and talk about uh, the way they'd like to see that used in their countries, um, how they can uh, remove D-Link basically development from pollution is what our mission is. And when you have uh, technology at the forefront of solutions, it affords opportunities in moments like this to sit down and really get things done. MOUs get structured. As you mentioned uh, at the beginning of this uh, with the Bahamas, they're stepping out. Uh, they are on the front line, so they don't have time to find a solution and innovation. They have to move now. Other countries that have desalination plants where we're waste product brine, which is a huge part of our uh, our technology, we use that. We can reduce the brine waste in the world and increase water uh, supply. Uh, so we provide uh, uh, an option in these conversations throughout the week where we talk to lead world leaders, uh, developing leaders, private sector leaders who are looking at us as a, country, as a company uh, that can be a part of the solution and change. One of the issues we know is, is so important here um, are the discussions about catalyzing funding. You're experiencing this firsthand. Yes. Um, you're not going cap in hand by any, any no, uh, stretch no. of the imagination. But this is about finding innovative solutions and ensuring that they get part of the funding that is available. Because is it your experience that that funding is actually becoming more available at this point? It is, uh, it is my first cop, as you mentioned, <laughs> so I'm hoping uh, we can have those conversations. Uh, where We don't want to be a CapEx-intensive uh, solution, but it is a reality of innovation. When you're looking to bring uh, uh, technology like this to the world, you need partners, you need individuals that are willing to uh, join in the financing of these matters. You talk about loss and damage. Countries are here, in some cases, hat in hand, asking for help. Um, I believe people are more inclined to help those that help themselves. And when you're, when you're not waiting for others to solve your problems and you're able to get out there and create solutions yourself, uh, I think you find more uh, collaborative conversations in the area of financing. <laughs> you're, right. you're absolutely right. How scalable is this, briefly? Very scalable. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go to partana.com and take a look at it. We tell, tell you everything about the science. Uh, we'll scale as fast as the world will call on us. So we invite you. This is our invitation. Please reach out. If you're a country, if you're a, a, a developer that wants to change the way we build in the world, 38% of our emissions come from the construction industry, 9% coming from cement. And we're an alternative bonding solution to that. We, we provide a way forward that's nature positive, regenerative building materials. Can you imagine that? It's all possible. You miss the game? I do. 
I know Shaq. I know you were with Shaq the other day. Um, I miss Shaq. I miss Kobe. I miss the, the, the days of uh, living a championship-driven, uh, purpose life. And I'm doing it now on this side, in the climate world, here with so many amazing people like yourself. You know, you, you take me around the world, all around the world. I see you every morning, Becky. Good stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, it's, it's a joy to have you on and so important that our viewers get to, you know, hear what's going going on on the ground yeah. and why it is that, that events like this are so important. Thank you for Always taking a the pleasure. time. Thank Appreciate you. you. Rick Fox in the house. Rahel, we will be back with more after this. Welcome back to First Move, and the midterm vote is on across America. Voters heading to the polls to decide the balance of power in Congress. As Americans cast their ballots, we've got a cautious market open. You can see the Dow is up about three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq is just slightly lower, and the S&P is just about flat. Now, Wall Street does tend to do well after midterm votes, especially when the outcome is a divided government. That said, this has been an unpredictable year, to say the least, for U.S. stocks. The Fed's ongoing rate hike campaign that's weighed on markets for months, well, that could ultimately be more critical for investors going forward. Also today, social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube will all face intense pressure to police any Election Day misinformation on their sites. Now, Facebook's parent company, Meta, has banned all new ads from the platform in the past week and says that it will also remove posts intended to suppress voter turnout or question election legitimacy. More than 40 million Americans have already cast their votes in early voting in some 47 states, including yours truly. That said, experts say it could take days or longer for all of the results to be finalized. And investors are not just watching how the midterm elections shake out, but also it is earnings season. That's also well underway. And jewelry maker Pandora, known for its signature charm bracelet, well, they're up just a bit more than 8 percent. That's after reporting solid growth in the third quarter. However, sales in the U.S. fell for the quarter. And in China, sales and revenue both fell sharply. And that's due to the country's strict zero COVID policy. Still, its CEO says that the shopping patterns of its customers are strong. So let's discuss. Joining me now is Alexander Lasik. He is the CEO of Pandora. Alexander, thanks for being with us today. Congratulations on the quarter. Investors seem to like it, although it seems like it was a a bit of a mixed picture on the sales front. Sales appeared a bit more challenging in the U.S. and China. Walk us through. Well, I mean, if you go back a few years, it was like you had one movement because the conditions across the globe, the macro was kind of similar across the Mm -hmm. globe. What's happening now is we have let's say, a a challenge situation across the globe. But they're very different drivers and very different timings on this, which means that kind of you really have to peel the onion to understand if a business is is doing well or not. In general, our business is in a very good place. Um, Now, if we talk specifically about China, we have to bear in mind that China is mainly 3% of our revenue in quarter three. So, yes, of course, I wish that the government there had a slightly more lenient approach to, to... the regulations because our traffic is down 60 odd percent so it's very difficult to trade under those conditions so so we have to kind of wait for for the chinese government to to start easing up a little bit in order to to see different numbers coming out of china then we look at the us our uh, 
organic growth is, is down three points uh, in, in the quarter, which I think we have to be very uh, satisfied with. Given last year with the stimulus checks, this the whole jewelry market rose by almost 50 percent. We grew a little bit faster than that. But what I kept saying to, to my shareholders and, and the analysts alike throughout the whole year last year was like, this is unnatural. This will kind of uh, reset uh, during 22. And that's pretty much what's happening. So in that context, to be down only three points, we feel actually quite uh, strong about that. And let's let's stick now with the consumer, the U.S. perhaps uh, as well, but also more globally. I mean, what are you seeing with consumer spending? Because, you know, I spend practically every day uh, listening to these warnings about recession. But what are you seeing with consumer spending? So we, we get this question a lot. And, and the approach I've taken is to say, OK, rather than speculate, let's look at the metrics that can somehow paint the picture. And the typical metrics that we look at to kind of diagnose the situation is things like traffic, the basket size, the conversion rates, the transaction volume and the units per transaction. Across the globe, let's let's park uh, China for two seconds, but across the globe, those metrics are actually very strong. The only mm. odd one or odd one, the only soft one, I should say, is in Italy, where we can now see that the macro is starting to influence. So we're down, I believe it was five points in, in terms of organic in Italy. But I think that's, uh, that's unfortunately the, the situation in Italy. Mm. Otherwise, across both quarter three and October, in fact, those metrics remain intact. So they remain strong. Traffic is good. I think that's interesting. So remain strong now. But is Pandora preparing for the potential of that changing? Listen, a any good management team needs to be two steps ahead of the market, in my view. So it means that you need to play with different scenarios. Of course, the, the sunny side scenario is, is the world goes back into kind of a, a high life mode again. Likelihood of that right now, probably most people would say is low. Therefore, what we have done, we've planned for a scenario where actually uh, numbers could look a little bit different. But just to give you a, a flavor of that, when we, um, in the kind of midst of the COVID pandemic, we... Um, our business was down 11 points. That year, we managed to deliver an EBIT of 20% and a return almost 5 billion Danish krona to our shareholders. So actually, our business model is extremely resilient. I see. So, but I, I just want to get a bit more specific. So what does that preparing for a potential downturn look like? Is that closing stores? Is that potentially layoffs? What does that scenario look like for Pandora? Uh, fair question. So the first one is to, to look at is when interest rate goes up, the silver price goes down. Silver price is, I mean, silver is my biggest raw material. So actually, I will get a, a tailwind come into next year because we have a hedging policy in place. So we actually have a, a quite good uh, tailwind coming in next year on raw. Then if you look at pricing, we've just made a, a pricing move. Uh, so on average, we've raised our prices by 4%. So that's going to give us a little bit of a cushion. And then the final point, which we've looked at, is the number of projects that I have. Because each project you start up, typically the way we've run it, was to add people and add uh, funding. So what we've said is we've kind of streamlined the portfolio of initiatives and say, mm. we have to make do with the people we have on board today. And then we just have to sequence uh, all these initiatives. So those are kind of the three main parameters which is going to protect the profitability structure of the company. Here's hoping. And I have to let you go, but very quickly, if you if you can, Alexander, I'm so curious to know, how is the global launch of the lab-created diamonds going? Is that catching on? Are people really buying into that? 
Yes, I mean, in fact, we only launched in uh, last year in UK and the second country to, to come on stream has been North America where you sit. Um, and initial results are actually very promising. It's in the stores where, where it's trading, it's making up roughly 5% of the business. Uh, I have stores doing more than 10% of the business and I have stores roughly about two, but on average it's 5% share of business after only seven, eight weeks. So we're very pleased so far. And it'll be one to watch for sure. All right, Alexander Lasik, the CEO of Pandora, thank you. Thank you. And coming up after the break, the Elon effect. Twitter still the talk of tech town. The new owner says it's more popular than ever. We'll take a look. Coming up next. Welcome back. Elon Musk says that he hopes that Twitter's servers don't melt because he claims in this tweet that Twitter usage is at an all-time high. LOL. Paul LaMonica joins me now for the latest twist and turn in this saga. Paul, another morning, another Twitter headline. We do know that Elon can be very tongue-in-cheek. What do we know about this statement? What is he basing this off of? Yeah, he's very tongue-in-cheek, very uh, bombastic, as we know. One of the problems now that Twitter is no longer a publicly traded company is that there are certain things that they don't really have to disclose to regulators as often or to uh, investors for that matter. He did, in a follow-up tweet, show a stat that uh, you know looked like it was the spike in, month, in uh, daily active users global and U.S. over the past week or so, but it's hard to really know if you know, the users and traffic is at an all-time high, as he claims. And again, Rahel, I mean, this is a man who has often made very bold claims about when he's going to meet certain deadlines for uh, Tesla that uh, wind up coming and passing, and uh, he has to extend them. So not to say that he's not telling the truth, but it's hard to know if he really is. Yeah, and it sort of reminds me of that expression, there is no bad thing as, uh, there is no such thing as bad publicity, which Elon seems to be running with. Uh, Paul, we do know that we are getting some reports that Twitter is also uh, closing down operations in Africa just four days after launching. Walk us through, what do you know? Yeah, I mean, we have reports from CNN that, uh, unfortunately, it looks like the offices in Ghana for Africa that were just recently opened are now shutting down. And uh, obviously, Elon Musk is taking a you know, hatchet to all of Twitter's operations globally. There have been massive layoffs. We have seen the reports of that, people at Twitter talking about how they've been let go. And it just begs the question of what is Elon Musk's commitment to Twitter going to be as a global company if you are shutting down the operations in uh, Africa? So I do wonder what does come next? Are there, mm. Is this going to be a company that focuses almost entirely on the U.S. and other developed markets at the expense of developing emerging markets? We don't know yet, but this isn't a great sign. Yeah, absolutely. And more to come, Paul. I'm sure we will be talking about it very shortly, if not here in the hallways here at CNN. So thank you, Paul LaMonica. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon in New York. Thanks for watching. Becky Anderson will be back with Connect the World from COP27 right after this. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.